This is Crossing Bridges, brought to you by 1UP, a coalition to end police brutality. Each show, we bring together one person from the world of activism and one person from the world of advertising and entertainment to discuss the issues of police reform and social justice. Today's host is Dr. Mitch Hamilton, co-founder and CEO of Rethink Creative Agency, as well as associate professor of marketing at Loyola Marymount University. He will be speaking with Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist, politician, community leader, and the first African-American to serve as Lieutenant Governor in Michigan. Today's topic is Every Vote Counts. And now, here's Mitch Hamilton and Garland Gilchrist. Historically, there has always been a gap between state governments and local communities. But you've been able, as a politician, to bridge a lot of those gaps. I believe most people view you as a true community leader. And so I was wondering how you were able to manage to become you know, such an effective political leader and also an effective community leader and then balance the two. Well, well, thank you for saying that. I mean, you have to be intentional. You know, the truth is I know where power comes from and, and power in our political system in America, when it's at its best, comes from people, comes from individual people who have decided to take collective action to change the future to change the present, to, to have a better future. That's, that's where power comes from. What I learned as community organizer that was very empowering to me was that every system that we work within or that we are working against, they were all designed by people. What that means is that a certain set of people made a certain set of decisions that have led to a certain set of systems that are optimized for a certain set of outcomes, right? Okay. And that might not include people who look like me or people who look like you. But what it also means, though, is that a different set of people, a more inclusive, enlightened, empowered, inspired set of people can make a different set of choices to design a different set of systems that are set up to make better outcomes possible for a broader set of people. And that's really empowering. So I think about that every day. And so when it's whenever I'm at the table of policymaking and decision making as lieutenant governor or as president of the Michigan Senate, I have to think about not only who I represent, but who am I literally having at the table to help drive what these decisions do, the outcomes that we will optimize for. And that's where representation matters. Representation in terms of identity, you know, whether that's, you know, race, ethnicity, uh, gender expression, um, sexual orientation, where you're from. Mm-hmm. immigration status or what part of the state or community you're from, the experiences that you have, maybe you're wealthy, maybe you're not. Maybe you came from a city, maybe you came from a rural community. Like we have to have all these experiences represented at tables. And when the table's more diverse, you get better decisions. Yeah. Like it works better. The system literally works better and is more responsive to more people. I love that response. I, in particular, I love you pointing out, you know, the importance of, of changing the actual system. Over the years, I've, I've had to catch myself because I've done less and less of the arguing with people on social media. You know, I'm like, what, what's that going to do? What impact am I going to have changing that one person's mind? But if I could change the system, then that's a lot different. And so, of course, we know that some of the earliest forms of American policing were slave patrols. So it should be relatively easy for most people to understand where and how the initial disconnect between police and Black Americans occurred. But why do we still have a disconnect between law enforcement and the community, more specifically Black and Brown communities? 
I think there are a lot of contributing factors to that. And, and I'll just say, we, we talked about, you know, representation, being a black man in my position and having this conversation, being part of this conversation about what it means to improve policing and is the practice of law enforcement. This is something that's really personal to me. So I talked about living the first half of my childhood in the city of Detroit. Well, second half was in a suburb of Farmington, Michigan, where I went from being, you know, in an overwhelmingly majority black city to being one of the only black people in my neighborhood. And I remember vividly the first time that I had to deal with the police as a nine-year-old, playing with my white friends, playing football outside. And somebody called the police for some reason. Like, I have no idea why the police got called. But the police came, and there's a bunch of boys playing football, and they came to me. And I grant, I'm, I'm a, you can't tell I'm sitting down, but like, I'm pretty tall. I've been tall my whole life. So they come to me. I'm bigger than everybody, whatever, I guess, right? And this police officer said something that just hit me, it hurt me. He said... I want to make sure I get your information because I'm going to see you again. Hmm. Like that, that, he, that hit me as a nine-year-old. I went back to my parents. I was heartbroken about that, right? So I bring all that to this conversation as, as a leader now who can impact policy. So I just share that as context and, and perspective. Or even, you know, when I got pulled over for doing 24 and 25 on my way to high school at 16 with a book bag on my front seat, a block away from my school for an officer to ask me where I was going or what I was doing, you know? Hmm. So this is real. I think that we have to recognize, first of all, that what is the goal we're trying to accomplish? The goal we want to accomplish is safety, right? We want people to be safe. And so we need to really look at all the tools in the toolbox when it comes to safety. And unfortunately, historically, when we're looking at whether it's the Black community, Latino community, frankly, low wealth communities across the identity spectrum, what we've seen is that people have feared that the police have not always acted in the interest of their safety and in terms of being protected and being served. And so that disconnect, you know, that could have roots back as far as you, as you describe, but also we've seen over time, communities have earned the ability to distrust police because of what's happened in their community. Whether those are, you know, sort of the large scale acts of police violence or brutality, or whether there's just small microaggressions like the ones that I described. And so that disconnect and distrust is what I think has fomented over generations and generations to where you have parents like mine have to have a conversation with their young kids. I had a talk. I got twin seven-year-olds and I'm worried that I'm, I'm going to be another generation of parents. Mm -hmm. I have to have the talk with my twin seven-year-old son and daughter. And so we need to think about then how do we resource law enforcement? How do we return law enforcement to being a respected profession to get a broader set of people interested in it that could be perhaps more representative? A lot of times in our communities, were policed by people who are not part of the community. And that sometimes leads to the mistrust. And there are a lot of factors here, but all of them I think are ones we can make progress on. It sounds like, you know, one of the at least partial solutions is to ensure that these police officers have some type of like true um, authentic attachment to the community, whether it's a community they grew up in or, you know, whether there's like residency programs or, or whatever we do. A lot of times, um, we have people policing communities that they have no attachment to at all. You care about things you're connected to, right? Mm -hmm. And so certainly people in my, in my community, I, just, I live in Detroit. Like I want law enforcement professionals who serve me in Detroit to have both care and connection with the community that they serve. That will cause you to make different choices, make different judgments, make different assumptions or not make assumptions about the people you're serving when you get a call for service. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be really important. And there are all kinds of ways to create incentives for that to be possible. Uh, so you mentioned some of the ideas. I think we should be 
creative and, and we should be willing to think of all sorts of ideas and possibilities about how to foster that connection and how to create ways for interactions that frankly lead to what we all want. It, with any human to human interaction, whether it's law enforcement or not, you wanna be able to go home at the end of the interaction. And that's as true for someone when they interact with the, with the law enforcement as it is for law enforcement itself. In every mm -hmm. law enforcement building that I've ever been in, there's a poster, a placard, something on a wall that says, everybody goes home. Hmm. That's what we all want. Right. So that's what we need to try to focus on. How do we make that not only possible, not only probable, but make that happen every single time. Right. On both sides of that equation as well, right? Yes, that's right. It was interesting. I actually would just begun those talks. I have a, a seven-year-old son and a, and a 10-year-old daughter, and we've begun those talks a little earlier with my daughter, um, just more recently with my son. And, you know, those are difficult conversations to have. Like nobody tells you that, you know, when you when you have kids, you're going to have to have that type of talk with the kids. And it's, it's a tough situation. Looking out of our window, our kitchen window specifically, we can see Michigan Avenue. And the Michigan Avenue in Detroit is where the demonstrations, the marches for justice for George Floyd were happening up and down Michigan Avenue. Mm -hmm. Started right after George Floyd was murdered in 2020. And so my children. We're looking out the window and asking me. Now, my kids have been, look, I, I'm an elected official. My kids have been to a march. Okay, they've been to parades, whatever, right? But they were asking me, you know, why, why are these people uh, marching like that? And my son, who is, he likes police. Mm -hmm. I had to, you know, have an age-appropriate conversation with my kids about why people were marching, who was George Floyd, what happened to him, and then, you know, why did that police officer do that to him? And having to try to explain that. Not a lot of coaching that you get for that as a parent. Oh yeah. You got, you got to learn on a job there. And, and, and before I jump to my next question, you know, your early experience with the, um, with the police, I imagine someone called and said, there's this big black kid that keeps scoring touchdowns on these little white kids <laughs> out here, man. Somebody come do something about this. <laughs> nah, yeah, it was, it was rough. I, 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 I will never know why that happened, but yeah, that was rough. <laughs> you know, more recently, the last summer specifically, you were motivated to speak out about police reform. One, what motivated you at that time to speak out about that? And then has there been any progress made since then? Like so many other people, this was it was actually, I think, a really important moment in our history where we saw this this cross cultural, cross generational uh, call for justice. Mm -hmm. And I think every generation, unfortunately, has confronted a moment like that where you had a call to make a choice for what you were going to do to try to make justice more more feasible in our communities. Recounting my own experiences. Um, I felt like it was important for me to speak out again, given my position. I think people needed to hear the fact that that those experiences are not something that you can achieve or elect your way out of. You know, I mean, I thought back to during the Obama administration when Attorney General Eric Holder described being pulled over by the police like while he was attorney general, you know. And so I thought it was important for people for in the media and others in Michigan to see that that I, too, have shared those experiences. But it was also important to see that that I was going to use everything or use every tool and opportunity to call for a measure of justice in our communities in Michigan and for, for, for George Floyd and for others across the country. That's why I participated in the march. I told you, I'm, I used to be a community organizer. Like I'm, I'm, I'm here for a march. OK. And so so we wanted to participate in that. But then now that I do have this mantle that Governor Gretchen Whitmer and the voters of Michigan have asked me to serve in, it's important to call for the type of policy change you want to pursue as well. And so I'm proud of, of the progress that we began in Michigan. That work is still ongoing. 
but we did things like ask civilian oversight to the policing agency that that we oversee in, in, in Michigan, Michigan State Police. We have something called the Michigan Commission on Law Enforcement Standards, and we added civilian oversight to that body with civilian participation, which previously had no civilian participation. And that's been shown as a best practice to improve relationships between law enforcement and the communities that they serve. We also call for legislation. Our legislative body in the state of Michigan has set a new standard as far as the use of everything from chokes and carotid holds to how we are uh, keeping track of officers that have use of force histories that are problematic um, to understand how they can, how we can make sure that we understand people's service records fully to implicit bias training for, for, uh, for officers mm -hmm. to understand like how to approach a situation while also recognizing that there are ways to deliver safety that go beyond policing. And so doing all those things is something that we are working toward in Michigan. These are also conversations that are happening on the local level in communities across the state, whether those are in cities and counties and county sheriff's departments, et cetera. And it fits more broadly into the, the criminal legal system reform work that I've been leading for our administration here in Michigan. Where we've done everything from putting forth some significant jail reforms, probation and parole reforms in Michigan, reclassifying offenses to where you wouldn't get arrested by the police in the first place. You would just have to show up in court, which is really important to also passing the most progressive and expansive automatic criminal record expungement program in the country. We passed that in October of last year so that even certain felony offenses can be automatically cleared from your record after a certain amount of time so that the fact that you made a mistake in your past after you paid that debt to society, that that is not a hindrance from your full participation in civic life or in the economy or access to a job or housing or a loan or anything like that. So this fits in that broader framework of how we deliver justice and opportunity for people in Michigan and that work will never stop. What are some of the must-haves that need to be in place for you to successfully work with law enforcement as a community leader? One of the things that I did during last, during last summer, in addition to making sure that I was in the street working with people, I was also having conversations with law enforcement professionals and law enforcement leaders across state of Michigan, who I happen to have relationships with. And this was in cities, not just Detroit, but like cities like Saginaw and Grand Rapids and others, and really having this conversation and asking them what can you bring to the table to this conversation? What types of improvements are you ready to help work with me on? I think the must have is gonna be communication. I do believe that there's a path to improving this uh, for the better. And so having their commitment to staying at that table is what's really critical. And some of that trust was built up over the fact that we worked together on those jail and pretrial incarceration reforms, for example, right? So that relationship, that interaction matters as a policymaker to make sure that you can have them at the table to deliver uh, for people. We have more work to do. Uh, the Michigan legislature now has a responsibility. It's led by Republicans, and I, I hope that they will be ready to come to the table to be able to improve policing. Because I don't think anyone is against improving policing. Like Law enforcement professionals are not against improving policing. And so that's what we need to be striving for. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if we want to improve, you know, police community relations, we got to build better relationships. I do want to have a conversation about the relationship between voting and law enforcement. I think it might be useful. It'd be useful for me. I've learned a lot just in the last 15 minutes of speaking with you. But I think there are probably a lot of other people that could benefit from you giving a, a digestible, bite-sized, you know, snapshot summary of the roles that state and local governments play in law enforcement. A lot of decisions, <clears throat> policy decisions about policing happen at the municipal level, like at the city level. In many cities, the chief of police, for example, is appointed by the mayor or the chief executive of a city. Some cities, like Detroit, does have a, something called the Board of Police Commissioners, which is a, a civilian oversight board. It's both an elected and appointed body of members of the community who do oversight. They handle civilian complaints about law enforcement, et cetera. 
So I bring that up because this is one of the most concrete examples of the importance of participating in local elections. Mm -hmm. Local elections have consequences when it comes to policing and policing policies. The majority of decisions about policing are happening at the local level. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, we have the ability to set standards at other levels of government. So we have the ability to set a standard, for example, I talked about in Michigan, we have something called the Michigan Commission on Law Enforcement Standards. That is a state level entity. And so we can set standards about literally how law enforcement is practiced, about what is inbounds and what is out of bounds, about standards for, for, for conduct and training and record keeping and all those sorts of things. And so we can set those policies at the state level. And the state legislature can enact laws to do many things, can enact laws to deal with questions like, again, the level of force and things like choking carotid holds or deal with um, questions of immunity. So those standards can be set at the state level. And then they can be further set at the federal level. So when we talk about things like the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act at the federal level, something that is being negotiated actively right now between the United States House and the United States Senate, these are things that can happen at different levels of government. But the biggest bang for your participation buck is going to be by participating at the local level, mayoral, city council elections. If you have an elected oversight body like we do in Detroit, voting in those elections for the people who share your values, that is how you will have the biggest and most immediate impact on the, the practice of policing in your community. I really appreciate that because I feel like a lot of people need to hear that, myself included. As a youngster, I was one of those people that didn't think my vote mattered, and I missed the first chance that I got to vote, you know, and I, regrettably so. And so fortunately, I've been able to be educated and educate myself and become a lot more aware about the impact and the importance of, of voting, especially at the local level. So I really appreciate you giving that insight there. There's always another opportunity to vote. I don't I don't look down on anybody who, who missed an opportunity because there's going to be another one. And so, oh, for sure. <laughs> so it's time to do the right thing next time. Right, right, right. And, and, and they want you to think your vote doesn't matter. With all the attempts at at making it more difficult to vote and, and attempts to suppress the vote happening around the country, including by Republicans in the state of Michigan. To me, that's an indication of how important, how valuable, how powerful the vote is, particularly the votes of low-income people, of lower people, of people of color, people who live in rural communities. Like, like those votes are obviously important because you don't try to stop things that you don't that you don't think are powerful. Facts. Right. And so that, that's what I'm seeing um, across the country and in Michigan. And we're working to stop that, too. Facts. Facts. Last question for you. I know you have a busy day. What are the top three things voters should know about the impact they can have when it comes to law enforcement? Number one, I think, is as the point I made earlier about voting in local elections. Your local decision makers are the ones who make the majority of the policy decisions about how policing happens in your community. So that's number one. Number two is, I think uh, one of the ways that that can help here is by both law enforcement professionals and members of the community, being willing to have interactions in situations that aren't tense. Hmm. And so, so imagine if like the first time you had a conversation with a law enforcement professional was not when you got pulled over. Right. It was not when they got called to come see about something. But if instead it was like, you saw somebody and y'all had a conversation. Having interactions in, in moments that are not tense, that helps. I mean, and that's just like any other human to human interaction, right? If the first time you converse with somebody is when you're having an argument, mm -hmm. that's not a great way to start a relationship. Right. And so I think the responsibility of that certainly falls on both parties. 
But I think that presents an opportunity to, again, to change the relationship and the nature of your default interaction with law enforcement professionals. And I realize that that's not a necessarily a, a small hurdle when you may see the uniform and be triggered and have that distrust triggered within you. Like mm-hmm. I recognize that. I had to work on that. It is worth investing in from, from both sides of that equation. And then I guess the last thing is just that the call for justice is going to continue and it must continue. And that whether it's looking at the Derek Chauvin conviction, that was important accountability. That was a modicum of justice for that family. And there are a whole lot of families who need a whole lot more justice. And so we must continue to do the work. We cannot grow tired and weary on this. And, and we have to stick with it. I really appreciate it. Is there anything we left out, Lieutenant Governor? I want people to leave this conversation empowered to know that their individual choices and actions can have an impact on this movement because movements are collections of individual people who decide to take action together, who decide to change the situation for the better together. And so, uh, you know, Dr. Kane talked about the arc of history. We need every single hand on that arc of history to bend it toward justice. We gotta, we, we we can pull harder, we can pull it farther, we can pull it faster if we pull it together. I just want everyone to know that they have a role to play and changing things for the better. I love it. I love it. And I just want to thank you again. You know, earlier I used the term visual representation, you know, because all types of representation is important, but some representations behind closed door, they don't really have the, the impact actually seeing someone that looks like you doing something that you didn't know you could actually do. And so I, I just appreciate you for that. And these young people growing up are going to appreciate you for that as well. Well, thank you for saying that. Look, every, everybody has a role to play. I, I'm a former ball player. And, you know, you got guards, forwards, and centers, right? Everybody's got a different job on the court, but everybody's trying to win. We have the same goal in mind. That's the way I see it. We all can do something that is productive, that helps make progress. And that's ultimately what we're here for. Exactly. And I'm the closer. I come in to hit that game-winning three-pointer. Uh, okay. Okay. Or make we'll that up. <laughs> 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 Thank you for joining us. Stay tuned for the next Crossing Bridges. You've been listening to Crossing Bridges, presented by One Up. Today's topic was Every Vote Counts, hosted by Dr. Mitch Hamilton, co-founder and CEO of Rethink Creative Agency and associate professor of marketing at Loyola Marymount University. And his guest, Garland Gilchrist, activist, politician, and Michigan's first African-American lieutenant governor. To learn more about One Op and our mission to end police brutality, visit oneop.org.